Mr. Attorney General, Brad, Dave McIntosh and I as National Co-Chairman would like to introduce Brad Reynolds and present him with this gavel as Convention Chairman. Thank you very much. Thank you. This is a prerogative of the, of the chair. Thank you very much. Uh, I will, uh, I will certainly uh, make use of this gavel if I need to, but uh, not to cut off anybody's remarks uh, in the next uh, two days because uh, every word is uh, is one that uh, that we're all going to want to hear. Um, let me welcome all of you to the first annual Federalist Society convention here in uh, sunny Washington D.C. I am uh, truly honored. <coughs> who have been asked to chair this, the bicentennial year of the Constitution, uh, to chair this Federalist Society Convention on changing the law, the role of lawyers, judges, and legislators. The Society has sponsored a number of highly successful symposia in the past, including last year's conference on the First Amendment held in Palo Alto uh, in March, and on the separation of powers held in Chicago in November. And the Society is also planning a symposium in April of this year on the crisis in legal theory and the revival of classical jurisprudence. And I hope that many of you will also be able to attend that, uh, that conference. The recently retired Chief Justice Warren Berger, a good friend of the Federalist Society, has been compelled by the press of his duties as chairman of the Commission on the Bicentennial of the Constitution to send his regrets that he will be unable to attend. He kindly arranged for the commission to distribute pocket copies of the Constitution that everyone should have uh, in, their, in their folders and, uh, and in their possession. And uh, feel free, uh, don't be bashful, open it up and, uh, and read it. Because of the uh, um, scale of this convention, which is larger than any that the uh, Society has uh, sponsored in the past, I'm certain that um, some among you may not be fully familiar with what the Federalist Society does. The Society is, like many of its members, relatively young, having been founded in 1982 by a group of law students at Yale and the University of Chicago, dissatisfied with the lack of balance in legal education. Consisting in the main of conservatives and libertarians interested in the current legal order, the Federalist Society is committed to individual freedom, to the principle of separation of governmental powers, particularly judicial restraint and federalism, and to the notion that it is the province and duty of the judiciary to say what the law is, not what it should be. The Society has attempted to promote these values through the sponsorship of legal debate and scholarship and has built a conservative intellectual network at all levels of the legal community. Today, the Society is a national organization with lawyer and student chapters throughout the country. Federalist Society, by dint of the enormous energies of its leadership and the compelling force of the ideas to which it adheres, has helped to redefine the parameters 
of the legal debate in this country and sparked lively new intellectual debate in areas fundamental to the way that our society is governed. In its efforts, the Federalist Society has earned the friendship and support of truly great members of the legal profession, including Attorney General Meese, who is with us today and whom we will hear from later on this evening, the Chief Justice, Justice Scalia, Judge Bork, and Senator Orrin Hatch. During our program, we will also hear from some of the most distinguished legal scholars in America, including Harvard Law Professor Lawrence Tribe, Judge Frank Easterbrook, who remains on the faculty of the University of Chicago Law School, Professor Jeffrey Stone, Dean-designate of the University of Chicago Law School, Dean Henry Mann of George Mason Law School, Professor Lino Gralia of the University of Texas Law School, Professor Saul Levmore visiting at Yale Law School, and Professor Bruce Ackerman of Columbia Law School. From a number of the circuit court judges in this country, Judge Lawrence Silberman, Judge Stephen Williams, Judge Pasco Bowman, and Judge Alex Kaczynski. From other distinguished jurists, Judge Stanley Mosk of the California Supreme Court, and Chief Judge Grover, affectionately called Rocky, Reese of the High Court of American Samoa, to name a few. And from one who by his insightful and compelling writings, in my view, may well outshine all others, Dr. Thomas Sowell. The society has often brought together great minds such as these to further our understanding of the complex legal issues facing the nation. Today's conference continues in this fine tradition. I want to thank you all for coming and promise you that you're going to have an intellectually exciting and stimulating two days. And with that, we can let the proceedings begin. I would like you all to rise while the U.S. Army Continental Guard Fife and Drum Corps presents the colors.
I would like now to introduce to you uh, one of this administration's very best. Uh, Boyden Gray is no stranger to the Federalist Society, having participated in its symposium last year at Stanford on the First Amendment. Boyden attended Harvard College and the University of North Carolina Law School, where he was editor-in-chief of the Law Review and graduated first in his class. After law school, he clerked for Chief Justice Earl Warren in the 1968 term. Before joining the administration, Boyden was a partner at Wilmer Cutler and Pickering and established a lasting reputation as one of Washington's very best lawyers. In 1961, he became legal counsel to the vice president and was later, uh, and later he acquired a, a second hat as the counselor to the vice president. Without any further ado, it's my distinct pleasure to introduce a very good friend and close co uh, colleague, Boyden Gray. appreciate your remarks, Brad. It's, I, it's amusing to me that I am the one who needs introduction to you, not the Vice President. But uh, nevertheless, he uh, has been asking me for me to introduce him. And I just want to make one point, since you all know who he is, that he's not a lawyer. And sometimes I think that his views of lawyers don't differ that much from those of Falstaff. And I, but, but he does respect them. But there's one anecdote which I think I should tell. This had to do with the regulatory reform bill five years ago when we were s sitting down in, in the Vice President's Hill office to go over with Senator Laxall some details of a pending um, regulatory reform bill that was then uh, before the Congress, before the Senate. And the Senator Laxalt, who handled this marvelously well, pulled sort of a fast one on us and, and allowed into the briefing Senator Bumpers, uh, who was uh, not on the schedule so far as we knew, and we had not briefed the Vice President about his particular presentation. And he was going to make a pitch to the Vice President about his Bumpers Amendment, which was then in the second or third generation of revision, then known as Grandbaby Bumpers. It may be great-grandbaby by now. But, uh, it, and I want to point out to you that the legislation was never passed. But he came in um, and made a, one of the most elegant and um, scholarly uh, disquisitions on the Bumpers Amendment that has ever been heard. It could have been, if it had been transcribed, it could go in word for word into the Harvard Law Review. Uh, the trouble is, um, he, he went on for quite some time, eyes were glazing over, and he paused, took a breath, and said, now, George, you know how important this subject is, and I need not go on too much longer. And the Vice President said, hold it, Dale. Two things. First, I'm not a lawyer. And number two, I haven't understood a word you've said since you said hello. <laughs> he does, however, have respect uh, for us, I think. And without any more ado, I'd like to introduce the Vice President of the United States. Thank you all very much. Thank you very much. I've got the darndest wife. I told her what I was doing or going to be doing at this time. She says, you got your nerve showing up with a group like that. But I, I am, I am uh, delighted to be here. 
And I want to thank Boyden. And I look out here and I see all these activists and brains in the audience and I, I kind of protect myself because I'm very lucky in my rather small office compared to the domain over which the Attorney General presides and having bright people with me, particularly Boyden Gray, who is my general counsel and who is doing a big job for all of us, that Ed and I agree, for the president, as we now take another look at regulatory reform, and Boyden and Wendy Graham on the cutting edge of, of the essential staff work to make that successful. And then John Schmitz over here, who is one of you. In fact, in our little office, we give him credit for being one of the founders, or at least one of the most interested early on in this Federalist Society. So I'm here, and I'm delighted to be here, and I want to pay my respects to Brad Reynolds, with whom we work. You know, there's public perceptions and there's private observations, and uh, I think it is well, well established nationally and internationally that in Brad Reynolds we have an exceptionally bright human being. But I have also seen that compassionate side, the side that uh, is shows a special concern for the disadvantaged and opportunity for them. And one of the joys I get in my job is seeing these additional dimensions, and so I salute him, and I'm just delighted to, uh, to be here. Boyden talked about that story and my, my uh, run-in with an exceptionally bright Rhodes Scholar from the other side of the aisle, Dale Bumpers. That really came from the story of the guy that called in, having seen one of these marvelous advertisements on, on television, called the 800 number of the friendly insurance company. And a voice said, hello, and the customer said, well, wait a minute. He said, I'd like to have know a little more about your exciting key man insurance, now, that plan I've been seeing on television. And he said, also, on your Medigap program. And lastly, I'm very much interested in if I take a higher deductible, what that results in in terms of lower premiums. And the voice said at the end, he said, look, I'm the janitor here. Uh, when I said hello, that's all I know about insurance. Well, that brings me to the Federalist Society. <laughs> and, uh, and you have, though, I know this, that you have made a already in a rather short life a considerable um, indispensable I'd say contribution to the dialogue about the rule of law which lies at the heart of the great freedoms that I am convinced many of us in our country take for granted every single day of our lives and I salute you for this intellectual vigor in framing the issues and also for the contributions that Ed and Brad and Boyden have told me that you've made to this administration. You know, as I was getting together these remarks for this afternoon, I couldn't help but think of the late uh, Justice Potter Stewart. As Ed knows, he was a very dear friend of mine. Barbara and I lived on the same street here, known him for years, knew him before we came here even many, many years ago. Very close friend. And I think he, each of us probably can cite, in your instances, law professors or judges that shape your thinking, but Potter really helped shape my views about the rule of judges, 
uh, perhaps more than any, any single individual. And he was a man of extraordinary uh, integrity and certainly ability and wisdom and indeed I'd say humility. His humility, his sense of his own mortal limitations was what, what struck you. And he used to say that the greatest difficulty on the bench was to avoid the temptation to allow his sense of what was good policy to substitute for his judgment of what the law required. And to resist the temptation is a judge's greatest virtue and one, I might add, that we look for in our judicial appointments is exemplified by the new Chief Justice and indeed by uh, Justice Scalia, who I believe is going to or has already addressed this distinguished group. I agree with Potter Stewart about the need for lawyers and judges to be restrained and disciplined in the exercise of power. But I think it's important to add that the other two branches must be equally disciplined in their exercise of power. And this means that the legislative and the executive in interpreting the Constitution subject to the Supreme Court's final constitutional review must constantly, constantly recognize the limits imposed on them even as they urge the judicial branch to recognize the constitutional limits on the judiciary. Now let me just take this opportunity to pose a question here at the end to about how the framers intended the executive branch to interact with the legislative branch with the conduct of, of foreign policy. As much as I would argue for the primacy of the executive in foreign affairs, especially over covert operations, I recognize that foreign policy is a shared power. But there's got to be a better way than we now have to share that power. In the last 20 years, we've witnessed a departure from the way in which this nation has conducted its foreign policy for nearly two centuries. Congress has asserted an increasing and influential role in the day-to-day -day micromanagement of, of foreign policy of foreign operations, if you will. And at the same time, Congress, through its use of law, rather than the executive's traditional tools of diplomacy and negotiation, has ushered the courts and lawyers into an uncomfortable but very visible role in the development of our foreign policy. I don't believe that the founders intended that our foreign policy should be conducted or reviewed by grand juries. And I know that de Tocqueville observed 150 years ago that we Americans have a great tendency to convert difficult political issues into legal ones. But this can go too far. And I don't believe the founders anticipated or intended judicial intervention into foreign policy. My understanding is that Hamilton and the founders fought to focus the conduct of our foreign policy in one man, the president, so that we as a nation would be able 
to act quickly, decisively, and where necessary, secretly, to achieve his goals abroad. The envisioned role for Congress was political, not regulatory. There was no role envisioned for the courts. And my own feeling is that we must simplify, deregulate, if you will, the conduct of foreign policy generally and covert actions particularly. Now, in our anti-terrorist report a year ago that, that uh, Attorney General Meese had such a fruitful hand in formulating, we suggested, and that I chaired, we suggested a joint intelligence committee as a way of building mutual confidence and reducing tensions, reducing leaks, getting rid of the inefficiencies in the conduct of foreign policy. Establishing such a single committee might make it possible to ensure that covert activity is confined to the CIA, subject to appropriate but disciplined executive and legislative oversight that is based on mutual trust not complicated regulations that frustrate the development of the trust. I believe it would be consistent with the theme of your conference then to inquire whether the founders have anything to teach us about the shared nature of the conduct of foreign policy. What role, if any, for the lawyers and the judiciary and as for the two political branches, what is the proper role for each? I guess when you're in Congress, as I was some years ago, you want Congress to have more of a say in foreign policy. And when you're in the executive branch is, is, uh, and you see an erosion of the president's ability to conduct foreign affairs, not talking just about this president, an erosion of presidential authority, I, and I think it has taken place, you understandably look at it from the executive standpoint. Yours is an exceptional group. And can't you help to find a way to establish under the law with objectivity what the proper balance is? For example, and I don't know, Ed, that we really have done any, maybe your department has kind of definitive thinking on this. For example, did the War Powers Act encroach too far on presidential power? Are the proliferating congressional committee hearings compatible with the view of the, of the founding fathers? Can the Congress properly dictate the micromanagement of foreign policy by an increased use of subcommittees and, and use of the appropriations process? Or to shift the focus, now from the other side, should an administration be required in advance of operations to consult or advise Congress. These are, are key questions. And if there ever was a group that has the intellectual facility to address them, it's this one. And I hope somewhere along the line, maybe not at this particular conference, but as time goes by, you'll find a way to help us, not just the administration, uh, not just the Congress, but I'd say America as a whole by finding the answers to these very complex questions. 
This was supposed to be not a lecture. I saw it billed as a lecture. That's awfully awesome. And it's certainly not a speech. In the trade, it's called a cameo appearance or a drop-by. But I'm sure glad you asked me over. Thank you very, very much. Vice President, thank you very, very much for those thoughtful and thought-provoking provoking remarks and uh, sincere appreciation of you taking some of your very precious time to spend a few minutes with us and to help us to kick off this convention. On behalf of the Federalist Society, I would like to present you with a full set of the new Federalist <laughs> Society ties, which, uh, uh, which can, can be purchased in the lobby for... <laughs> oh, they're beautiful. Oh, they're wonderful. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you, you very Brad. Much. Thank you all. Thank you. We'll see you guys. Thank you.